You are listening to the podcast of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. CBMW exists to promote the Bible's teaching on men, women, and marriage. Learn more at cbmw.org. The Nashville Statement is a confessional document released by CBMW in 2017. Since its release, the Nashville Statement has been signed by over 25,000 evangelical pastors, scholars, and leaders, as well as adopted and affirmed by evangelical churches and institutions across the world. In this podcast series, we are walking through each of the 14 articles of the Nashville Statement as we discuss the statement's biblical basis and ethical implications with Denny Burke, president of CBMW and one of the principal authors of the statement. Today, we are tackling Article 9. I'm Colin Smothers, Executive Director of CBMW. And my name is Denny Burke. I'm the President of CBMW. Here's what the Nashville Statement says in Article 9. We affirm that sin distorts sexual desires by directing them away from the marriage covenant and toward sexual immorality, a distortion that includes both heterosexual and homosexual immorality. We deny that an enduring pattern of, se- of desire for sexual immorality justifies sexually immoral behavior. Denny, help us understand what it is we're getting at here in Article 9. We're really trying to address the issue of the morality of same-sex attraction. Um, same-sex attraction has been the subject of a good deal of debate, even amongst people who name themselves as Christians. And you have... Uh, among evangelical Christians even, those who would name themselves as evangelical Christians, some would argue that same-sex attraction is moral, either a morally indifferent category, uh, it's not morally implicated really so much, or some would even argue that it has good elements to it. Um, you can parse out same-sex attraction from its actual sexual attractions to maybe emotional and kinship bonds that can be made. And so people would argue that same-sex attraction has elements to it that can be sanctified and, and, and made holy. So that's one side of the debate, you know, arguing for this sort of either moral ambiguity, neutrality, or even positive attitude toward same-sex attraction. Um, I have argued, and, you know, CBMW represents a position that argues that that's really not the case, because when you understand what same-sex attraction is, it's, you can't argue that it's morally indifferent or praiseworthy in any way whatsoever, because when people talk about same-sex attraction, or even when they talk about homosexual orientation, what they're talking about is a pattern of desires towards the same sex. So sometimes you'll hear folks say, well, the Bible doesn't really ever talk about same, uh, sexual orientation. Uh, that Those words aren't in there. Those are new concepts. And, and, and in fact, even the Apostle Paul and other biblical writers, they didn't even know about that concept. Um, but that's really not accurate when you understand the way that um, you know, secular authorities today, like the American Psychological Association, how they define sexual orientation. They define sexual orientation as... Um, a consistent pattern of sexual desires for the same sex, opposite sex, or both sexes. And that has to be an enduring pattern of sexual attraction or desires over like six to nine months, something like something like that. Hmm. But the way that they define orientation and same-sex attraction is in terms of a pattern of desires. To say that the Bible doesn't speak to sexual orientation would be the same thing as saying it doesn't speak to our desires. But that's not true. And the fact that a person can, can experience an enduring pattern of desires over time doesn't 
remove it from the Bible's purview of speaking to our desires. And so what I have in mind in particular is just the way that Jesus taught about this in Matthew 5. He says, teaching on the Ten Commandments, he says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, anybody who looks upon a woman, not any, anyone who looks upon a woman to desire her sexually has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so Jesus says it's not just the doing of uh, sexual immorality that's a problem, it's the desiring of it that's, that's a problem. Now, Jesus is talking about uh, issues dealing with heterosexual attractions because he's talking about adultery, right? Which are named in this affirmation as well, we should, we should note. The heterosexual desires away from the marriage covenant. Yeah, and so what, what we're arguing in the, in the Nashville statement and what we're agreeing to, hopefully, is just what Jesus taught. He argues that, look, it's not just the doing of adultery that's a problem, it's the desiring of adultery. Now, when Jesus taught that, he was not being an innovator. He was, I think, just merely putting together the, the seventh commandment with the tenth commandment. These were things that were already in the law so that anybody with eyes to see and ears to hear, they should have seen this already because the seventh commandment says, you shall not commit adultery. And then the tenth commandment says, you shall not desire your neighbor's wife, which is the law of Moses saying, don't do adultery. Don't desire adultery. And so what we should should have known, anybody should have known, uh, could have known even before Christ said it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Anybody could have known that it's not just our deeds that are morally implicated, but also our desires. And the Bible is saying, look, if, when it comes to your sexual desires, if you are desiring someone other than your spouse, any sexual desires that aren't ordered to the covenant of marriage would be aberrant, sinful, sexual desires. That's not just about gay people. That's about everybody. That's about me. That's about you. That's about every person listening uh, to this podcast right now. No matter what you feel your quote-unquote orientation is, when you have sexual desires that are not ordered to the marriage covenant, the moment that you're aware of those and you feel them occurring in your heart, that's the moment you should recognize it as emerging from your fallen nature and therefore sinful and as something to repent of. Now, what we're trying to do with the Nashville statement is not single out gay people for special censure. What we're trying to do is to what we're trying to do is to say no, we're all in the same boat together, right? And when it comes to aberrant sexual desires, all of us are called on to recognize them as such and to repent of them and to understand that they emerge from our fallen nature and they're not something that's a part of God's good creation. Yeah, I think that's really important to see how even the Nashville Statement is structured. And here in Article 9, we see the marriage covenant mentioned again, that what we're trying to do here is we're trying to hold forth God's standard, God's rule for how we measure our uh, human sexuality. And our human sexuality, whether heterosexual homosexual, whatever, and, and the goodness of that, sexual desire, etc., it's all measured by whether or not it is sanctioned according to God's design in marriage or aberrant from that, away from that. And so pointing to God's design in Genesis 1 and 2, as Article 9 does here, uh, our sexual desires, insofar as they direct us away from the marriage covenant, they should be repented of because those are 
what the Bible calls sexual immorality, that kind of catch-all word we've talked about in previous podcasts as porneia. Uh, any distortion away from that, whether heterosexual or homosexual, should be repented of. And this is just, honestly, this is just standard Christianity 101. You know, when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees and the scribes, you know, why don't your disciples um, do ceremonial washings like everyone else before they eat? You know, Jesus' response was, uh, don't you understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and it's eliminated. That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, and wickedness, as well as deceit. And he goes through all of these different sins. So what he's saying there is that when it comes to any sinful deed you might do, before you do that deed, something is happening in your heart. Um, Something is happening in your heart that's inclining you toward that deed. And Jesus is saying, you can do all the scrubbing on the outside that you want until your heart is transformed. You will not change. You will not be different. But Jesus is saying that what's going on in the heart is actually sin. He says, what comes from the man is what defiles the man, for from within, out of the heart, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, and all the rest. So it's the heart that's the issue, and it's the heart that is generating our desires for evil things. So what we're talking about here is really not an insight about homosexuality per se. It's really just an insight about what it means to be a human being because every single one of us are dealing with this same heart reality. The denial, it says that an enduring, we deny that an an enduring pattern of desire for sexual immorality justifies sexually immoral behavior. I think it'd be good for our listeners to hear exactly what argument that is kind of heading off. And I'll just set it up this way. I even just read recently online where someone was arguing that homosexuality as a term was added to the English translation sometime in the 20th century. Before that, you know, wasn't necessarily, you know, something that the Bible spoke specifically to. And I think that argument kind of is encased in uh, the understanding that what Paul was dealing with in the first century, what he was responding to was the, the norm would have been a heterosexual orientation, and anyone who's deviating from their heterosexual orientation by acting out in this homosexual way, that's what's forbidden. You're going kind of contrary to your, your normal or your enduring pattern of desires. But what we're saying in this article is, is we're answering that argument. We're saying, no, even enduring patterns of desire, orientation, is something that God's Word addresses in very clear terms. Yeah, so one of the main revisionist interpretations of Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 is this idea that Paul did not know anything about sexual orientation. So when we use the word homosexuality, that indicates an orientation, and Paul didn't know about orientations. So when Paul writes Romans 1, 26 and 27, says this, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, it says here that both men and women who engage in homosexual activity are going against 
nature. Okay. And the revisionists have argued, this is not just one person, but a lot of different writers, they have argued that nature there refers to a person's own personal sense of sexual attractions. And Paul only knew, and the ancient writers only knew about heterosexual attractions. And so when you, if you have heterosexual attractions and you go against that, you're going against your nature, defining nature just as your own attractions, whatever they are. And so what, what, what the revisionists say is, is that Paul just didn't know that there were some people who actually had an orientation that wasn't heterosexual. Some people in experienced an enduring pattern of sexual desires by nature that were for the same sex. And because Paul didn't know about that, he's only condemning here in Romans one, those people who are acting against their nature, their heterosexual nature. He's not condemning those who act against their homosexual nature because he didn't know about that. And so they'll say this text doesn't really have anything to say about committed same sex relationships um, because Paul between people of a, a, a homosexual orientation, because Paul didn't know about that. Now we know about that, and as as long we know that they can have a nature that they act in accordance with. That that's kind of how the revisionists go. What we're trying to say is, look, you know, that's a misunderstanding of nature. Nature is not your own personal sense of your attractions, because you're a fallen person. All of us are fallen. All of us have fallen sexual attractions, and sometimes our sexual feelings betray us. And sometimes our sexual feelings are not telling us the truth or pulling us in the right direction. So you can never define as nature your sexual feelings because they can be broken or fallen or lead you astray. Now, what we do understand is that when Paul says nature, he's thinking of Genesis 1 and 2. He's thinking of what God designed the world to be from the beginning when there was no sin in the world, no fallenness in the world, when everybody's sexual attractions were well-ordered and in keeping with God's law. What did you have? You had one man and one woman and a conjugal covenant union for life. That's, that's what you have according to nature. So when Paul says, you know, these men and women are burning in their passions for one another engaging in unnatural acts, what he's saying is they're going against God's original design. That's what going against nature is all about. And that is something that nature is something that is true and objective, quite apart from how you feel in your sexual feelings. Your, your sexual feelings can be disordered to a certain extent, um, well, to, to varying degrees, <laughs> okay? Your sexual feelings can be disordered, fallen, and they're not a reliable guide. But what is a reliable guide is God's revelation in nature, and that is one man, one woman, and a covenanted union for life. Anything outside of that would be considered fallen and wrong. And we should note nature not only as testified by Genesis 1 and 2, but nature as testified by literal nature, natural revelation, our very bodies uh, in the way that they're designed and continue to bear testimony to the way that God designed in Genesis 1 and 2, those things, uh, is what is revealed, is what determines what is right and what's wrong. That's, that is God's design. And we know from Genesis 1 and 2, we even know from human history, God's design is fulfilled in the marriage covenant. Again, why we point to that in Article 9. And that's why, that's why we would say, we do say, that while God's design and creation has been marred 
by the fall and by sin. It hasn't been erased by the fall and by sin. You can still discern God's good design even in this fallen world. Um, it's still apparent. It's still there. There is still a sexual binary. There is still, you still have to have a male and a female in order for procreation to occur. This is all embedded in nature and hasn't been erased by the entrance of sin into the world. Amen. And insofar as our human societies, our culture embrace God's good design, there we're going to once again see flourishing. And insofar as we continue to chafe against that design, chafe against how God is designed in nature, that way leads to destruction. Resources like the CBMW podcast are made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider giving at cbmw.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening.